theyeshiva.net. Eichel Menachem presents a tale of two souls, an ongoing lecture series on the Tanya by Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson. This is the second tape in the series entitled Man in Search of Identity, recorded live at Heichel Menachem, Brooklyn, New York. Last week, we discussed briefly the history of the Tanya and its author, giving an overview of the life and times of the Alter Rebbe. We studied together the title page of the Tanya. Today, prior to commencing the actual study of the texts, I want to discuss the central theme of this fundamental classic. You see, when a book, any type of book is written, the obvious question we ask is, what purpose does the book serve? What is the void it's coming to fill? What was troubling the author? which motivated him to write this book. And the same question should be asked, of course, concerning the Alter Rebbe's Tanya. What was it that was perturbing the Alter Rebbe, which inspired him to author this work? Which questions was he attempting to answer? Which dilemmas was he seeking to address? What is the contribution of the Tanya to Jewish thought? What would we be lacking without it? Obviously, several approaches can be taken in addressing this important question. I offer here today one possible approach. The Tanya is relatively speaking a lengthy piece of work, consisting in its first section of 53 chapters each chapter containing a multitude of ideas, insights, experiences, feelings. And the multitude of insights and ideas can easily obscure the central theme and unifying thread which permeates the entire Sefer. As a result of the many details, one may often fail to comprehend the central theme which the author is trying to get across. But the truth is that in our case, fortunately the problem is significantly diminished, because the author wrote a title page to his work. And in this title page, he defined the function, the purpose, and the primary theme of the Sefer Atanya. To quote the Alter Rebbe in his own words, this book, in other words, is based on the verse. This matter, Torah and its precepts, is something that is very close to you. In your mouth, in your heart, that you may perform it. To explain clearly with Hashem's help, how it is indeed exceedingly close in a long and short way. Simply put, the purpose of the Tanya is to explain to the Jew 
how Yiddishkeit, the Torah and its mitzvahs, are karavelecha, are close to him. Every chapter, idea, insight of the Tanya, in other words, is primarily there to demonstrate to the reader how you, how Yiddishkeit is actually karavelecha, relevant to you, close to you, connected with you, part of you, and so forth. What is the problem? What is the enigma? What is the difficulty in this statement that one needs a safer for it? So last week we discussed in more detail the obvious difficulty in this declaration of Moshe Rabbeinu and Parshas Nitzav, both on a functional level as well as on an emotional and, psycholo- and psychological level. On a functional level, Living a life in full accordance with the Torah does not seem at all to be something which is exceedingly close to you. The same is true from a psychological and an emotional point of view. The Torah way of life seems so very often to be superimposed upon us. Maybe sometimes even repressive and dogmatic. The Torah's mitzvahs, its rituals, demands, perspectives, obligations, can be perceived as being something totally irrelevant to us, as individual thinking and feeling human beings, totally detached from the human condition. Many may even view it as a doctrine which serves as a suppressor of our natural dispositions, our natural innate passions. Yet Moshe comes, Moshe Rabbeinu comes and says, This problem, this issue that the Al-Turebbe is perturbed by, that he's coming to address, let's attempt to examine it a little more deeply. In his introduction to the Tanya, which we will be studying together, God willing, next week in our next class, the Alter Rebbe points out that his work is essentially a compilation of answers which he presented to his students, his chassidim, his followers and disciples. In response to their questions, they presented to him over the course of many years. Questions dealing with issues concerning their spirituality, their relationship to Hashem, their psychological development and growth. Now these questions were of course many. Many in numbers, many in content. Coming as they were from a broad spectrum of people, from so many different backgrounds. Each person according to his own particular circumstances, his own personal condition. But nevertheless, in various discourses, letters, and essays of the Alter Rebbe, we do find a recurring dilemma, which as he informs us, has been plaguing a many of his Hasidim, as it plagues us still today, as it plagues us till today, 200 years later, in their search towards achieving spiritual wholesomeness. This dilemma concerned the never-ending strife 
existing in man's life between that which one knows one ought to do and that which one is disposed to do. On one hand, the Chassidim lamented, they do find themselves aspiring towards spirituality and godliness. They do experience in their consciousness a deep desire to be good, moral, holy and godly. At times, they are permeated with a vision of transcendental oneness, of infinite energy. They're overtaken with limitless passion. But then, at other times, these very same individuals, these very same people, find themselves experiencing life in a very divisive, gloomy, and mundane fashion. They are overtaken by beastly tendencies, ugly cravings, selfish impulses, often gravitating to what is immoral, to what is profane in life. What is worse, these polarities are often experienced in such close proximity with each other. In the morning, for example, man can be overtaken by a profound feeling of ecstasy. He experiences in some form or fashion the sublime, the celestial, the eternal. He is infused with a sense of awe, wonder, splendor, amazement. At those times, he is absolutely inspired, motivated to serve Hashem, to daven, to pray, to learn Torah, to engage in the performance of mitzvahs, of good and holy deeds. Barely several hours pass, and boom, the spiritual inspiration dissipates. The sublime ecstasy withers away as he finds himself being drawn to animalistic, selfish and coarse behavior. Volsto, you could think, Volsto, you can't name it. One could think that this sharp transition is a one-time experience. The following day is the Zalba The same story reoccurs all over again. Morning beacons and man's heart is filled with positivity, Jewishness, idealism. He feels that Imamish loves his Yiddishkeit. At those special moments, he says to himself, you know, I really love this. It's great. I feel so good about it. I would never give this up for anything, for nothing in the world. And then, a little while passes, maybe several days, maybe several hours, and lo and behold, it's all gone. The whole spiritual high is not, nothing, as if it never existed to begin with. Man is reduced to a small earthly creature, totally engulfed in his egotistical addictions, his self-centered fears, his trivial concerns. This brings to mind the Gewaldic Avot of Reb Nachman of Breslov, the great Hasidic master, the founder of Breslov, who was a colleague and good friend of the Alter Rebbe, by the way. You know, each Friday evening in Kabbalah Shabbos, we recite Tehillim chapter 98. 
where there is a pasuk, Naharois Yimchal Chaf Yachad Hardemiraneinu. The rivers will clap their hands, the mountains will sing together. What is the meaning in these words? Why do we recite them on Shabbos also? We all know the nature of the human condition. One day, you are the happiest man on earth. The next day, you want to commit suicide. One day, you're such, you're in such a beautiful mood. Life is so great. The following day, life is lousy. One day, we're so elevated and holy. The next day, so lowly and meek. Now, human beings, us human beings always attempt to impose our moods on other people. You ever saw a human being is in a certain mood? He expects that every person he encounters should be in the same mood. I, it's his problem that you're in a certain mood? No, if he's in a certain mood, the whole world is expected to share the same moods. So we human beings also love that our, to impose our moods on Hashem's world, on God's nature. So in our moments of exhilaration, we stand in front of the sea and we want it to celebrate with us. We stand on the mountains desiring that the mountains should join us in our ecstasy and bliss. But nature, Ibn Nachman says, is very real. Unlike us human beings, nature is extremely honest. So when you're on a blissful high and you attempt to impose those feelings on the, ri- on the rivers... They, the simple, honest rivers, look at you and they say, hey, wait a moment. Come back here tomorrow. Let's see how you will, what your mood will be tomorrow at this time. Then we'll party together. When the person is dancing, shouting, jumping, he stands at the peak of tall, high mountains. He's totally overtaken by a blissful heavenly mood. And he expects that the mountains should celebrate with him. Look at those mountains. The mountains silently gaze at this person and they whisper. Wait a moment. Let's see how you will behave tomorrow at this very time. You're so holy today. Let's wait one more day. David HaMelech is begging for the day. When the harais yimchal chaf yachad harim yiraneinu, when the rivers will clap their hands, the mountains will sink. When man's clapping of the hands, dancing of the feet, singing of the soul will be real, enduring, lasting, eternal. Then finally the whole world will sing with us. The whole of nature will celebrate with us. The rivers will clap their hands. The mountains will shout, jump and dance. Every single Shabbos, we have a taste of that day, the Yom Shekule Shabbos, the time of the eternal Shabbos. But till that day, feelings of elation and distress share our days. Experiences of depression and joy share our psyches. The deepest highs and the deepest lows are combined together in the same human being.
the same person calls himself holy, spiritual, and godly. That same person, several hours later, experiences himself profane, egotistical, and animalistic. What is going on here? How are we to understand this absurd phenomenon recurring in our lives on a day-to-day basis? How are we to deal with it? Which leads us ultimately to the existential question. Plaguing the thinking, the searching person. Who is man? Torn as we are. Between the polarities of selfishness and selflessness. Egotism and idealism. Profanity and sanctity. Between that which we know and that which we desire, we ask the question, what is ultimately real in life? Our tendency towards self-gratification and indulgence, so natural to the very stuff of our chemistry, or our aspiration to soar beyond the self and touch the divine. What is real? Our gravitation towards the earthly and the mundane? Or our yearning towards the transcendental and the eternal? Is man essentially an animal? Only capable of celestial illusions? Or is he indeed a creature of a higher plane? A mirror of the divine image? And in this process, we also come to ponder the nature of the truths and values the Torah endeavors to impress upon our lives. Are these a set of superimposed premises and rules subjugating us to a doctrine that is alien to our natural desires? Or are they an expression of our true selves, our true identities? Can the absolutes of Yiddishkeit ever become truly real in our lives? We all know very well and clear that despite the fact that there are moments when we do celebrate Torah, when we do embrace it with zealousness and fervor, little time passes and we feel ourselves estranged from it. We can identify with a whole other way of life. Does that not prove ultimately that our whole connection and absorption in it to begin with was merely an illusion, a fantasy, a dream. It can never really become part of who we are. And these questions arise within us, not so much because of the polarities per se, that each side presents and projects. At the moments of spiritual ecstasy, it feels so real, so powerful, so all-pervading and all-pervading and all-embracing, so much a part of who we are. At those times, we make a firm resolution that we will never revert to our back to our old negative habits. We will never resume our negative patterns of behavior. At those unique spiritual peaks, 
We cannot even imagine ourselves wanting anything else in life. Why should I want something else when spirituality and godliness is so beautiful? It's so geschmack. It's so true. Then, barely a half a day passes. And all of that which we were repulsed by in such an intense fashion is back. All of the negative temptations return in their full intensity. And at those moments, they feel so real. They feel as, they feel as so much a part of who we are. They feel so emesdic. The spiritual high is then reduced to sheer insignificance. Its impact nullified. Its memory erased. We feel then like simple animals seeking instant gratification. Comes again Meishu Rabbeinu. Meishu Rabbeinu comes along and declares... This matter is close to you. It's very close to you. What Moshe is saying is that albeit the endless fluctuations, transitions, shifts and changes, notwithstanding the struggles, frustrations, letdowns, complications, Albeit the natural questions, dilemmas, cynicism embedded within us, notwithstanding all of this, the Torah is after everything said and done, Karay Velecha. It's close to you, it's relevant to you, it's a part of you, it's real, it's truly real. To explain this, you need a book. And it is this book that Reb Zalman of Liadi was attempting to author by writing the Tanya. To explain clearly how it is indeed intimately close to you. For this, Valter Rebbe cannot just write a safer consisting of insights on parish festivals or on other specific topics in Jewish thought. That would be beautiful, magnificent, ter- terrific. But to explain how Karev Lecha, one needs an all-encompassing, all-embracing work which should get back to the basic, quintessential elements of life and existence. We must to shed, he must, he has to shed all the layers, get back to the root, to the core, to the essence. So the Alter Rebbe invites us in his Tanya to take a journey into the very core of ourselves, into the heart of the cosmic reality, into the nature of our relationship with our Creator, into the essence of Torah and its mitzvahs. And the Alter Rebbe emphasizes in the long, short way versus the short, long way. The Tanya is not a book 
consisting of short and sweet inspirational sound bites. It's not a book which grants the reader swift spiritual highs and swift relieves from spiritual anxiety. It's not Tylenol, it's not psychological Tylenol, it's not Prozac. Instantaneous anxiety relievers at times are very important. When you have a headache, you should take Tylenol. But that is generally the short, long way. And Al-Tareb strongly believed that in issues of man's spiritual and psychological growth, the short ways are ultimately the long ways. And the long ways are ultimately the short ways. The Tanya therefore chooses the long, shorter path. It is profound, profound, comprehensive, thorough, all-encompassing, requiring a similar response on the reader's part. Learning, meditation, depth, commitment, a lot of work and toil. It's interesting that this approach is reflected not only in the content of the Tanya, but also in the style in which the Alter Rebbe wrote it. You'll see, you'll realize that in the Tanya, there are very few paragraphs or sentences, passions and feelings of exaltation. The choice of words that the author selected is rather simple, and sometimes even a bit on the monotonous side. You see that Al-Tarebbe intentionally compressed his powerful emotions and his astonishing crystallized depth. He compressed it within his words, allowing only a glimmer of it to project outwardly, to project itself outside of the words. You will seldom find in the Tanya overwhelming outbursts of passion, evoking within us a gush, a gush of ecstasy. Valtirebbe compressed it all within the words. In a way, I think one of the reasons he did so was because he insisted upon the response of the reader. This book is built on the feedback of the reader. The more he learns, the more he sees. The more he integrates the message, the more he appreciates it. It's only when you learn sometimes one parak again and again and again, when one realizes the deep ecstasy, emotion and depth that Al-Tarebbe embedded here in the Sefer. This is called the long, shorter way. This is called the long way, but it's ultimately short. It's long because it requires learning, it requires commitment. The Al-Tarebbe wanted, it should permeate the person, and in order to permeate the person, it takes a lot of effort. It's not presented to him on a golden platter without any effort and toil on his part. There's no overwhelming energy that swallows him up and transports him to the spiritual world. No! 
He must integrate it into his own system. It must become part of his identity. And in order to become part of your identity, you have to work in a much more difficult way. But then it's short. It's long, but it's short because then you're connected. We discussed last week the two roads, the physical two roads, of uh, the road which is short, but when you come to the entrance of the city, you can't get in because it's obstructed with orchards and so forth. And then there's another road which is long, but when you're there, you're there. When you come to the entrance of the city, you can enter the city immediately. Yeah. Very good. Why you're asking? Yeah. Why the short, longer way is called a way? It's not a. Why is it called a path? Why is it derech tzarevarucha derech? If it doesn't get you into the city, so it's not. It shouldn't be called a path. It doesn't get you anywhere. The answer is, the answer, it's a very good question. I would answer it as follows, that uh, there is a difference, there is a major difference between the two roads on the spiritual level and the two roads on the physical level. Two major differences. In the physical path, in the physical world, the short, long path doesn't get you into the city. The city is obstructed and you cannot enter into, into its portals. In the spiritual long, shorter way, we cannot say that you did not enter the city at all. When a Jew is inspired to do a mitzvah, when a Jew is inspired to behave in a proper way, he entered the city, he became connected with Hashem, he became connected with his neshama. The problem is that he did not enter the city in his totality. It's possible that it was only external. It's possible that it was only momentary. But you cannot say that he's totally outside of the realm of the city. That's A. And B, in the physical world, one path excludes the other. You cannot travel the long short path while you're traveling the short long path. And conversely. In the spiritual level, they both ultimately have to be used. The question in the spiritual life of the Jew is not either or. It's a question of emphasis on priority. But a Jew, for example, cannot wait to resist from acting on a negative impulse till the last curve of the long path has been, been taken. That path can be very long, can be as long as life itself. You can't wait and prevent, an, wait till, you cannot wait until the Jew takes the long path. And finishes taking it. If you see, for example, a Jew wants to do a negative thing, you have to use all means possible to prevent him from it. He should live a healthy life. The question is, is on emphasis, priority. Al Tareb's emphasis on priority in life is In the Alter Rebbe's attempt to address the above-mentioned dilemmas, he establishes in his Tanya three fundamental doctrines. A. 
man possesses an essential duality within his psychological anatomy. The Jew is not a one soul, but a two-souled creature operating on two levels of consciousness. One is an animal consciousness, termed a nefesh apahamas. This consciousness is the essence of physical life and focuses on the self. It's every act motivated by the quest for self-preservation, self-enhancement, and self-gratification. The second is a divine, transcendental soul, termed the nefesh halikis, which gravitates to its divine source and yearns to connect with that which is real, absolute, and eternal in reality. Both of these souls, the Alter Rebbe explains, are inherent in man's identity. Neither of them is superimposed. Neither of them is an illusion or a fantasy. Both the transcendental as well as the egotistical soul are real components of who the human being is. Man, in other words, is a dichotomized entity. The Altarebbe describes our lives as an awesome battlefield where a battle is taking place every day and every moment of our life. A battle between the impulses and cravings which draw our soul downwards and our yearnings and ambitions to soar upwards. A battle between self-assertion and self-negation, between matter and energy, between substance and spirit. To be or to be not, that is the question according to the Alter Rebbe. The animal soul desires to be. The divine soul yearns to be not. Point B. This duality is not random or coincidental. Hashem created man in this fashion purposefully. He desired that man's journey towards truth and harmony should be fraught with the ongoing conflict inflicted upon him as a result of a zoological, mundane, here and now type of perception. What this purpose is, the Alter Rebbe will also deal with in the Tanya. See, notwithstanding this multiplicity and the perpetual conflicts resulting from it, the human being has the absolute power and liberty at every moment of his or her life, to remain loyal to his true identity by accessing and tapping into his divine soul and allowing it to be realized in his or her daily life. Despite the powerful struggles and conflicts, despite all of his fluctuating moods, despite his ups and downs, his better moments and worse moments, despite man's unhealthy, maybe even ugly temptations, at the end of the day, the human being possesses the full potential and ability to make the divine soul, the visionary, 
the guiding light and the absolute ruler in his or her daily life, creating through that a harmonious, healthy balance in his psyche and character. Speaking in extremely loose terms, we might say that point number one is the primary theme of chapters one through nine of the Tanya. Point number three is one of the central themes occupying chapters 10 through 34. Point number two is a common thread behind chapters 35 through chapter 53, through chapters 35 through 53, with which the first section of the Tanya concludes. And Al-Tarebbe termed this work with a very original and beautiful name, Sefer Shalbanunim, which means the book of the intermediate, the book of the intermediate men, or if you will, the guidebook for the ordinary man. Who is the Bainani? Who is the Bainani whom the Al-Tarebbe is addressing? The Sefer shall Bainani. The Bainani, the Al-Tarebbe will explain, is the man who possesses, in a very conscious way, the above-mentioned duality. Not like the Tzaddik, who has achieved moral perfection, totally egoless and godly. The Bainani's life is dichotomized between two souls, between two consciousnesses. An animalistic, egotistical, selfish, self-centered conscious, and a divine, transcendental, selfless, idealistic soul. And his entire life constitutes of a struggle between these two perceptions, perspectives, philosophies, and visions. It's interesting that Al-Tarebbe began writing another book, which he titled Sefer Shal Tzadikim. This was the book, for not for the ordinary men, but for the all extraordinary men. For the supermen. For the extraterrestrial human, so to speak. In his recently published notes on the Tanya, the Rebbe relates a story which he has heard from his father-in-law, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak. At the period of time when the Alter Rebbe began writing his Sefer Shal Tzadikim, the Shpaler Zayde, Rabbi Yehuda Leib, came to visit him. I don't know the Rebbe writes if this occurred when the Alter Rebbe was in Liyajna or in Liadi. I mentioned last week that the Alter Rebbe lived in Liyajna until the year 1801. In 1801 he moved his court to Liadi. The Shpaler Zayde said to him, Du wast angeheben schreiben a Sefer shal tzadikim und die Welt kennest nicht vertragen. You began writing a book of tzaddikim and the world cannot contain it. Therefore it has evoked fierce opposition in the heavenly realms and it has been decreed that it would be consumed by a fire. And I, I concluded the Holy Shpala will ascend in that fire to heaven. A fire did break out in the Alter Rebbe's home. In that fire, the Sefer Shal Tzaddikim was burnt, together with several sections of his Shulchan Aruch. 
At that time of the fire, the Shpoler Zayda passed away in his own hometown. But that is a Sefer Shal Tzadikim which deals with men of totally different dimensions. This Sefer is the Sefer Shal Bainanim, the guidebook for the ordinary man who is not egoless, who is not wholly godly, who is dichotomized, and who experiences a deep conflict as a result of this dichotomy. But despite his conflict, he refuses, the Benini refuses, to succumb to the self-centered desires of his animal self and allow them to be realized in his behavioral life. He always remains loyal and faithful to his divine identity. Notwithstanding the real battles going on in his heart, he comes to learn the nature of the struggle. He comes to understand the intended purpose of this conflict. So the struggle, the conflict does not demoralize him, does not desensitize him or throw him into despair. The obstacles are perceived as challenges. The challenges as opportunities. He serves his creator with celebration, vigor, enthusiasm, honesty. Discovering ultimately peace within the peacelessness and harmony within the divisiveness. The Alter Rebbe termed his work Sefer Shalbeninim because he was attempting to address who we are, not who we are not. He was attempting to make Yiddishkeit Karay Velecha close, intimately close to us, to you, to me, to us people who are not spiritual who are not godly, to us individuals to whom the world seems no less real than God, maybe even more real, to us human beings to whom materialism is as powerful as spirituality, maybe even more powerful. According to the Alter Rebbe, not everyone can indeed attain the spiritual perfection of the tzaddik. Not everyone can achieve absolute Inner wholesomeness. But not everyone must achieve that state. Man can be aware that he is incomplete and nevertheless fulfill his divine purpose in life in a very real, exciting, deep and honest way. He cannot necessarily achieve perfection in the essence of his character. But he can achieve perfection in its garments, in his thought, speech, and action, in his behavioral life. This spiritual personality, defined in this work as the Bainani, is the hero of the Tanya. He is the possible man, the profile towards which every man should strive for. The Bainani opens up a door for every human being in every situation and of every level to find his own place among those men who are striving to soar on high, to connect, to become true servants of HaKadosh Baruch The Bainini is not the individual who wins, but he is also not the human being who is defeated. He is the man who fights, who toils, who struggles. The clamor of his efforts is exquisite music to Hashem's ear.
this is perhaps a brief, very general summation of some of the central themes of Rav Shneir of Liadis Tanya. Above mentioned points, notwithstanding their extraordinary significance in our whole approach to life, do not encapsulate the whole content of the Tanya. This is a safer with ideas surrounding their central theme and even the parenthetical insights are no less interesting, revolutionary and powerful than the central theme itself. This is a safer which is a masterpiece of a work. The more you read it, the more you discover in it. It's a safer which encompasses an all-embracing world outlook, a structured model of Jewish history, and personal ethical guidance and instruction in so many issues and problems that come our way during our journey on the face of this earth. Rebbe Yitzchak of Barditchev, a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, a student of the Magid, put it well. Upon seeing and reading the Tanya, he said, I am amazed how it's possible to compress such an infinitely great God into such a small book. When the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe Rabshalom Bershneyerson began learning Tanya with his son, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. He told him the following words The Sefer Tanya is the written Torah, the Torah Shabiksav of Chasidis. Learning it is like learning Chumash. Everyone from the grave learns it. Everyone understands what he understands, and no one understands anything. Have a good day and a wonderful week. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, uh, you're asking that I said previously that Al-Tareb explains the third point, how one creates balance and harmony in his life by making the divine soul the visionary. So you're asking why not the other way around? Why not say that we should make our animal souls the visionary and that will create healthy balance in our lives? Yeah, I understand you. Since you're saying these souls are anyway in conflict, so why do I have to follow my divine soul and make my animal soul miserable? Let me follow my animal soul and make my divine soul miserable. The Vaila, the Vaila, you'll have an enjoyable life, Zakhto. In the natural scheme of things, as seen from the Tanya's perspective, the animal soul will submit willingly, in certain cases even eagerly, to the divine soul, but never vice versa. When a person makes his divine soul the visionary in his life, 
He is ultimately not only being loyal to the divine soul, he's also being loyal to the true essence of the animal soul. When he makes the animal soul the visionary in his life, and he subjugates, and he attempts to eradicate the divine soul, he is abusing the precious holy soul which is in him. And therefore, healthy balance and tranquility of the spirit and of our inner psyche can only be achieved when the divine soul is victorious in the conflict. Let me explain. Let me explain to you why. The animal soul, which the Haltureba explores in the Tanya, is not evil. It's by no means to be understood as a purely negative force naturally drawing the person towards all types of negative activities and behavior. It's not the case. The animal soul represents the identity of man as a biological creature. As a certain developed state within the zoological species. Obviously, within this species itself, it contains superior qualities to other animals, especially in the field of intelligence. But essentially, this soul is a man defining man as part of the zoological species. All natural dispositions and instincts come from this biological soul. We all have these instincts, they come from this nefesh. They're not bad. They're instincts stemming from man's quest for self-preservation, for self-endurance, for self-gratification. They're not evil in their pristine state. They're rather neutral forces, which ideally, as I will soon discuss, can serve as a vehicle for the divine soul which must function through them. But this is where distortion begins Since this soul can be tempted by various elements pretty easily, it can quite easily fall prey to negativity and evil. Due to the fact that it is a biological soul, it does possess a brute and crude nature. It doesn't have the ability for real broad vision. It can quite easily be tempted by various forces and it could find itself being drawn to different things which are absolutely unhealthy, maybe even outright evil. The animal soul, for example, is not a thief. It's not a liar by its nature. The animal soul doesn't want to lie, cheat, deceive, kill, steal. But it wants to survive. It wants to exist. And it can be tempted to engage in thievery or in lying when it feels that this will serve her good. If this will contribute to her preservation, to her ultimate existence and gratification, she will be tempted to do so. And this is what happens so very often. Our neutral animalistic soul becomes a force gravitating to all types of unhealthy or sinful behavior. What happens then is that the soul is degraded to a lower level than its natural plane. It sometimes even becomes quite difficult to distinguish between her natural self and her unclean garments which she has enclosed herself in, which are the temptations to ugly things. 
But on the other hand, the soul can also be refined. It can be enlightened. It can be educated. It can be sublimated. This soul can be elevated. In the case of certain individuals, we will see, it may even be totally transformed into a full and complete ally and partner of the transcendental soul. It can ultimately begin identifying with its ambitions, with the goals and the visions of the Nefesh Alakis. So this life force of the Nefesh Bahamas essentially is an animal life force. It's a biological, spiritual, vital soul connected to corporal reality. That's what it is. By virtue of his divine soul, as a result of his divine soul, that is where man receives his unique identity as a human being. An identity expressing itself in the, in the ability for transcendence and true idealism. In the ability for self-nullification. For rising beyond the natural ego. Forgetting about his selfish, egotistical identity. And soaring to be included with a divine identity. So in the natural scheme of things, the divine soul is to serve as the visionary in man's life and the animal soul as the implementer of that vision in a physical concrete world. The purpose of the animal soul is to serve as a conduit, as a vehicle, as an instrument through which the divine soul can express its vision in a corporal reality, in a physical environment. So when a person lives his life in this fashion, there is a harmony and balance in his life. He is ultimately being loyal to the divine soul and also ultimately being loyal to the animal soul, which is not essentially an enemy of the divine soul, which essentially will submit willingly, which can come to identify with the ambitions of the divine soul. It's essentially being loyal to the totality of the human experience. The moment, however in which man's life becomes nothing more than an expression of his biological identity, his inner equilibrium is disturbed. And by no means can he be satisfied psychologically when the divine soul is hungry, is thirsty, is yearning to be released from its prison. By no means can you convince the divine soul to abandon her identity for the sake of fulfilling the instant gratifying issues that give gratification to the animal soul. And therefore, the resolution of the victory, the resolution of the... Yeah, that's the point. The issues will be understood in a much more clear fashion as we continue learning the Tanya, as we begin studying the chapters of the Tanya. Next week we will study together the Hagdama, the introduction which the Alter Rebbe has written to the Tanya. Have a wonderful day. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.